Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 38 years we have engaged the public in reflection and dialogue on key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. Our hour-long forums are free and open to all, and we invite you to join us in the sanctuary of Westminster Presbyterian Church for upcoming events. Information can be found at westminsterforum.org or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and I'm the moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha is an associate professor of pediatrics at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine and a pediatrician at the Hurley Children's Hospital in Flint, Michigan. In 2015, she was internationally recognized when her research exposed the high levels of lead in the blood of the children of Flint after its water supply was switched from Lake Huron to the Flint River during the previous year. Today, she directs the Michigan State University and Hurley Children's Hospital Pediatric Public Health Initiative, a program committed to researching, monitoring, and mitigating the impact of the Flint water crisis on children. She is the recipient of the Freedom of Expression Courage Award from Penn America, and she has testified twice before the United States Congress. Her new book and the focus of today's presentation is What the Eyes Don't See, a story of crisis, resistance, and hope in an American city. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Dr. Mona Hannah Atisha. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It is great to be here in Minneapolis. It is great to be here with all of you. And I am so excited to share this story, the story of crisis, resistance, and hope with all of you. As you know by now, the story of Flint is probably the most emblematic public health and environmental disaster of this young century. It is the story of what happens when people who are charged with keeping us safe care more about money and power than they care about us or our children. But Flint is just the tip of the iceberg. Flint is not isolated. The story of Flint and the story in my book is about the deeper crises that we are facing right now in our nation a breakdown in democracy, the disintegration of critical infrastructure, environmental injustices that disproportionately impact the poor and the black, the disrespect for science, which we are seeing every day, and the abandonment of our civic responsibility and our deep obligation as human beings to care and provide for each other. If we stop believing that government can protect our public welfare and keep all children safe, not just our privileged ones, what do we have left? So I want to start by taking you back to a different Flint. Um, so what, before the water crisis, what was Flint famous for? 
are where are the Michiganders in the audience? Awesome. Show me your hands. Point to where you're from. People on the radio are missing out. So everybody is holding up their mitten and they're pointing to that mitten where they're from. We also have the Upper Peninsula, which we forget about. They're important too. Um, but, but before the water crisis, um, Flint was known for cars. So we are the birthplace of General Motors. But more importantly than, than being the birthplace of cars, Flint is also the birthplace of the middle class. Um, in the 1930s, the late 1930s, 1936, 1937, auto workers were disobedient and they were resistant. And they said, we've had enough and we want a, sh a fair share of the economy. So they sat down and occupied all of the car plants in Flint. This was known as the great sit down strike. And for 44 days, they sat in the cold Michigan winter, kind of as cold here, maybe not as cold as here in Minnesota. And, and they sat and they demanded occupational health and safety. They demanded a living wage. Um, and it was unprecedented because the then governor of, of Michigan, Governor Murphy, and Franklin Roosevelt, Roosevelt finally, finally intervened and they called in the National Guard. But they didn't call in the National Guard to make sure the workers got back to work. They called in the National Guard to protect the workers. And for the first time, the workers' union was recognized, the UAW. And what came out of that was something called the Grand Bargain. At Flint, and that what it informed wages across the country for decades. They received those, those living wages and pensions and benefits and great schools and great infrastructure. And that spread throughout America, and people all over the world came to Flint. Immigrants from all over, African Americans from the Great Migration North came to Flint for great living wage jobs. And that changed. Um, and at one point, and it wasn't even too long ago, the 1970s, the people of Flint made the most money in the country. They had the highest per capita income in the country. Think about that. The people of Flint they made the most money in the country. Right now, we are the poorest city in the country. And because of policy choices, Flint has been in crisis really for decades. We suffered from disinvestment, unemployment, poverty. Our children have a 60% poverty rate in Flint. Violent crime. The military special ops medics, they train in Flint because it's essentially a war zone on our streets. No grocery stores. Almost every disparity you can imagine we have in Flint. So much so that a child born in Flint has a 15 year less life expectancy than a child born in a neighboring adjacent zip code. 15 years. And this is not unique to Flint. All over this nation, children are waking up where their entire life course trajectory is predicted by their environment and their situations of birth. And this is, this is, this is my job. So I'm a pediatrician and, and my job, my job is, is preserving the dreams of our children. Yet in Flint, our children were waking up to nightmares. Not only all of this socioeconomic stuff, but what was happening in our water was threatening the tomorrows of literally all of our children. So unless you've been kind of underwater over the last few years, you've heard about the Flint water crisis. And you remember seeing those pictures of brown water coming out of people's taps? And, and I didn't even believe it at first. I mean, how can that be? This is America, the richest country in the history of the world. 
This is the 21st century. This is not like 19th century London with raging cholera epidemics. This is Michigan surrounded by the Great Lakes, surrounded by the largest source of fresh water in the world. But despite all that, there's rules and there's regulations and there's laws and there's people, right, who wake up every day to make sure that when we turn on our tap, our water is safe for our children to drink. So patients would come see me in the clinic and they would ask me, is this, is it okay for me to mix my baby's powdered formula with this water? And I said, of course it is. How can our water not be okay? Are you sure my daughter should be drinking water instead of pop? Yeah, yeah, eight glasses of water a day. My baby gets a rash whenever I put her in this water. Oh, I'm sure it's okay. I was also blind to what was happening with our children and, and with our water. So how did this happen? So Flint was in this dire economic state, and in Michigan, if you are near bankruptcy as a city, the state can swoop in and take over. So in 2011, Flint lost democracy. Overnight, we were under the control of financial emergency management. And we had a series of emergency managers, and their only job was austerity, to save money, no matter what the cost. And they decided that the water that we had been getting from the Great Lakes for half a century, fresh, pre-treated water, was too expensive for this poor, predominantly minority community. And that to save a buck, we would start drawing water from the local Flint River as a temporary move until a new pipeline to the Great Lakes was to be built. And what was wrong was that the Flint River water wasn't being treated properly. It was missing an important ingredient called corrosion control. And as a doctor, I think of it like a medicine that you're, you put in the water treatment to prevent the pipes from corroding. And without that ingredient, our water was 19 times more corrosive than the water that we had been getting from the Great Lakes. It was so corrosive that just a few months into this water switch, General Motors, which was born in Flint, noticed that this water was corroding their engine parts. So they got a free pass and they got to go back to the Great Lakes. But the people of Flint were literally told to relax, that everything was okay. Jesse Jackson called Flint a crime scene. Michael Moore, who was, who was from Flint, said the water crisis was not a mistake, that it never would have happened in a richer or whiter city. But there's another side of this story, and there is another side of Flint, and it is the reason I wrote this book, and it's the reason I am here today. Because the story of Flint is also a story of how we came together, and how we fought back, and how we resisted. When I heard about the possibility of lead in the water, any pediatrician, anybody in public health would rightly freak out. We know what lead does. It's a potent, silent, irreversible neurotoxin. We have known what lead does for centuries. And we are at a point where incredible science has told us that there is no safe level of lead. Impacts children's cognition, behavior, leads to developmental disorders. It's even been linked to things like criminality. Levels that we thought were okay decades ago when we had lead in paint and gasoline, we now know are not okay. And we also know that lead is a form of environmental injustice, also known as environmental racism. 
Our Flint kids already had higher lead levels, just like kids in Detroit and Chicago and Milwaukee and Philadelphia, some of our country's most vulnerable children who are already rattled with so many toxic stresses already have higher rates of lead exposure. So when I heard about the possibility of lead in the water, I knew I needed to prove the impact. I knew I needed the data to see if that lead in the water was getting into the bodies of our children. And in rapid detective style speed, um, we did that research and that's, that's all in the book. And I love to share, um, Oprah put the book on her summer reading list and said it had the gripping intrigue of a Grisham thriller. Um, so who knew like science was such a page turner? I'm like, obviously it is. Um, so in, in rapid around the clock speed, we did the research and we found that the percentage of kids with elevated lead levels doubled in the city nothing was happening outside of the city and where the water lead levels were the highest um, we saw the greatest increase in children's lead levels and this is where i did something that doctors and scientists don't usually do uh, when we do when we have we do research we publish in journals and we go to conferences and that takes time and it has to go through that peer review process and our kids in flint did not have another day so I walked out of my clinic and I stood up at a podium just like this, but it was a lot shorter. They didn't have a stool for me and I'm really sharp. <laughs> and I shared the research that our children were in harm's way and that we needed to act. And right away, just like everybody else in the story, the moms and the pastors and the activists and, and the scientists, right away, the state went after me. They said I was wrong, that I was an unfortunate researcher that I was causing near hysteria, which is also sexist, that I was splicing and dicing numbers and that their numbers were not consistent with our numbers, with my numbers. And for a moment, I believed them. And I thought to myself, why didn't I just stay busy as a pediatrician, as a residency director, as a mom, as a wife? Why didn't I just stay in my own busy bubble? Why did I have to get into this mess? Why did I open my eyes? And that lasted briefly. And I quickly, quickly realized that this had nothing to do about with me, but everything to do with my kids. As a pediatrician, I have literally taken an oath to protect children and to be their advocate, to be their healer and protector. And my research was based on numbers, but those weren't numbers, those were kids. Every number was a kid, and those kids gave me courage to get back in this fight. And we fought back with more numbers and more science and more evidence, and finally, the state conceded, and the man-made crisis was exposed. And within a few weeks, we were back on Great Lakes water. But to this day, in Flint, we are still on filters and bottled water as our damaged lead pipes are being replaced but I get to spend my every day privileged to continue serving our children. We are building a model public health program, leaning on the incredible science of child development, brain plasticity, resilience to buffer the impact of this crisis. And sometimes I say that I'm writing prescriptions for hope, 
but what we are doing is real and it's tangible. It's things like home visiting programs, breastfeeding support, two brand new childcare centers, near universal preschool, school health services, Medicaid expansion, trauma-informed care, behavioral health services, mindfulness in schools, mobile grocery stores, and the list goes on and on. And we're also working on the bigger things that kids need, things like jobs and economic development and participatory democracy and restorative justice and self-determination. We are committed to tipping the scales for our kids in Flint. And what we hope to do is share what we are doing with kids everywhere because Flint is not alone. There are children all over this country, black, brown, white, urban, rural, who are waking up to the same nightmares, the same toxicities of lost democracy, austerity, injustice, discrimination. But it doesn't have to be this way for our kids. These are choices that we have made as a nation, largely policy choices. Sometimes when I, when I hear the news each day, I, I think we are almost at war with our children. The news is devastating. Children sobbing in detention facilities where our government is forcibly taking them away from their parents. Kids slaughtered in their own schools because of our inaction on gun violence. Our childhood poverty rate is the worst of any industrialized nation. A generation of mass incarceration has robbed children of their parents. The dismissal of science especially in our environmental laws and climate change, will literally make catastrophic the world that our children and their children will live in. And as a pediatrician, I know the medical and the public health consequences of these policies. They are all traumas. And childhood trauma, especially repetitive trauma, leaves lifelong scars and alters really their entire life course trajectory leading to things like developmental delays and chronic diseases and decreased life expectancy. So one of my favorite quotes in this book is from Charles Dickens. In Great Expectations, he wrote, in the little world in which children have their existence, there is nothing so finely perceived and so finely felt as injustice. It may be only small injustice that the child can be exposed to, but the child is small and its world is small. But we are not talking about small injustices here. These are large injustices invading the small worlds of our children and they need large interventions to heal them, to protect them. As I said earlier, as a pediatrician, I took that oath to protect kids but I would argue and challenge you that you all took that oath. As civil rights lawyer Brian Stevenson said, who I was here, I heard recently, you don't judge a society by how they treat the rich, the powerful, the privileged. It is how we treat the most vulnerable among us that we define ourselves as a society. Today, we are once again faced with a question of what kind of society we wish to be. And this is where we can learn from Flint. 
Yes, the story of Flint is a story of a crime committed with absolute indifference against some of the most vulnerable people in our country. But it is also a story about how everyday people, moms and grandparents and pastors and journalists and scientists, said we've had enough and took action for their kids. And that gets to my favorite part of the story because it's not about me, it's about you. It's about all of us. It's about who we are and who we want to be. The title of my book is What the Eyes Don't See. And it is so far beyond just Flint because it is about people and places and problems all over that we choose not to see. But I hope it is a rallying cry to remind us that it is our responsibility to open our eyes and each other's eyes to these problems. But being awake is not enough. We must take action for what is right, to care and provide for each other, especially our children. And that means all of us has a role to play. No matter who you are or where you live or what you do or how you came to this country, so this book is also an immigrant story. I came to this country when I was four, fleeing the regime of Saddam Hussein, fleeing dictatorship and tyranny and fascism. And my family and I came to this country for freedom and opportunity and democracy. And that American dream was absolutely realized for me and my family. And that is unapologetically and proudly weaved into this story because we are at a time in our nation where we need a reminder of, of good immigrant stories. So, thank you. So as Martin Luther King said, whatever ship brought us here, I definitely came on a different ship, whatever ship brought us here, we are all in the same boat. We can work together to create a better, safer world. So I challenge all of you to come together, to each be a piece of the answer, not just for Flint, but places like Flint, which are all over. Our kids everywhere are counting on all of you. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Dr. Hannah Atisha. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister here at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is pediatrician and activist, Dr. Mona Hannah Atisha. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I'd like to thank our broadcast partner, the statewide network of Minnesota Public Radio News, heard in the Twin Cities at 91.1 FM, and the media sponsor of today's forum, the online news source, MinPost. We invite you to join us at Westminster Church for our next forum on Tuesday, November 13, one week after the midterm elections. 
when presidential historian Michael Beschloss will explore the topic, Presidents of War. Visit our website, westminsterforum.org, for further information. And now, Dr. Hannah Atisha, if you will return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from the audience. I'm interested in the quote you, you had, uh, actually the title of the book, What the Eyes Don't See. I think the rest of it is The Mind Won't Know or Can't Know. The Eyes Don't See What the Mind Doesn't Know. Doesn't Know, okay. And you apply that quote throughout the book to your work in medical research, but to me it also has to do with the, the democratic issues. Absolutely. In terms of what you faced in trying to come to terms with change in your community. Can you describe that? Sure. Bit? So the quote is a D.H. Lawrence distillation, the eyes don't see what the mind doesn't know. And I first heard that phrase as a pediatric resident during my training uh, when one of our professors attendings would always drill us. Uh, we'd have a complicated case, a patient in the hospital, we were doing rounds. And when we couldn't figure out a diagnosis or we couldn't, we didn't have a, a long enough list of a differential, which is like possible diagnoses, he would yell at us and he'd say, the eyes don't see what the mind doesn't know, saying you all need to go home and read more. Um, and it has so many, um, kind of, it means so much in this book because uh, it's the very literal. Uh, we don't see lead in water, it's invisible. Our eyes also do, don't see the consequences of lead poisoning. It's known as a silent pediatric epidemic. People don't show up with symptoms. But very much, um, it also speaks to my blindness. Um, I have taken care of dozens and dozens of children with lead poisoning. I didn't even know that there was the lead in our plumbing before this water crisis, which is so ironic because who knows what the word lead means? What's the elemental symbol of lead? PB, it comes from the Latin plumbum, which means plumbing. So lead actually means plumbing. And so, you know, I had my own blindness and I was also um, awoken. Um, but yet yeah, it also very much kind of refers to um, the population that we chose not to see. So Flint was being ignored, it was being neglected uh, by policymakers, by bureaucrats, and, and you know, it was our work that helped kind of bring it to life. What caused uh, the Flint River water to be so corrosive? It, the, the city had good water, and there's a dramatic photo in the book where you, the mayor is flipping the switch to move from Lake Huron water to Flint River water. What was wrong with the Flint River water? Yeah, so the Flint River has a history of manufacturing and legacy pollution. It actually has caught on fire twice in its history. Um, but it's gotten a lot cleaner with um, the Clean Water Act. Uh, the fault of, uh, of the water was not the Flint River. The Flint River would have been okay to use. Difficult to manage, but it would have been okay to use if it was treated properly. So it was not treated with something called corrosion control. The ingredient uh, to prevent the corrosion was not added to the Flint River water treatment. Um, and that was despite it, it being a necessarily federally mandated ingredient. Um, and even when the EPA told the state you need to add this, um, this ingredient, they, they refused to. Now, from a scientific perspective, what can we do to hold our cities accountable for pollutants in the water? So I think that's the whole point of the book is, is what role do we all have to play as, as, in our, as citizens being civically engaged. So just keep asking questions, keep digging, ask to see you know, the results and the tests 
Um, team, the, the, this story is also a story of the power of teams. Um, so I, I didn't do this work alone. I, one of the reasons I didn't want to write this book, I'm like, this is not a story about me. It is a story about all these folks that came together um, from, you know, like I said, moms and journalists and water scientists and activists to uncover this. And when you are um, part of a larger team, you, you, you are more powerful at uncovering these issues. So sometimes we think we are fighting these struggles alone, be it, you know, water quality or pollution issues or other justice issues. There's folks out there that are also fighting the same struggles. And one of the lessons of this book is that my team was as diverse as possible. Um, we so often have isolated ourselves with people who look like us and think like us and vote like us. And my best friend in this, in this crisis was a water engineer from Virginia who was tall and white and voted differently than me. And he cared about kids probably more than I cared about kids. Um, so get out of our silos, get out of kind of our bubbles and find those people who care about things as, as much as you do and, and you will be so much more powerful. Uh, you also, I think, point out in the book that the mayor of Flint, uh, whom you expected to be an ally in the struggle, wasn't. Uh, and he was from one political party. The state was controlled by another political party. So uh, in terms of this being a nonpartisan issue or a partisan issue, uh, it really turned out to be uh, a matter of democracy in some ways and democracy not working in that community. Exactly. So we did have a mayor in Flint, but the mayor had no power. The mayor and the city council um, were under, had, had no role. Um, they were just figureheads because everything was under the control of the emergency manager. Uh, so initially we did present our research to the, to the sitting mayor, um, but he, he didn't respond. He didn't do anything and he, and he couldn't do anything because the emergency manager directly reported to the governor. Uh, so a big lesson of the story is the power of democracy is the, is the need to have voices at the table. Uh, and no matter how messy, no matter how lo loud it, 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 it is, people need to have representation. A number of questions coming forward about uh, you being a woman and being up against an establishment. Do you think the state would have responded differently if you were a, a white male? I don't know. Um, so I mentioned uh, the water scientist from Virginia, Mark Edwards. Um, he is tall, white, good looking, and he was also attacked. Um, they called him um, a magician, that he was pulling rabbits out of hats. Um, so I, I don't know. They were anybody who raised any concerns about this water crisis um, was being attacked. But obviously, like I mentioned earlier, there was you know some sexist comments in, in their attacks of me, the, the near hysteria, um, not only attacking kind of my, my credibility, but also the science. I know you said the book is not about you and the story is not about you, but it is in a way about you uh, because of who you are and what you uh, wouldn't take, which is... And I did write the book, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> I th I did, was it your U.S. Senator that described you as, and I don't, don't like using this language, but it's badass, is oh, that, that right? Was, that was Rachel Maddow. Oh, Rachel Maddow, okay, well, all right. <laughs> So, best, how, best compliment ever. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you uh, leverage your, you know, the research results, which is technical stuff, how did you leverage that to, to make change in the system? Yeah, so as a pediatrician, it's, it's always been in my job description to be an advocate. Um, we are, I, I was trained and I train my trainees that you have to use your voice 
to speak up for children, especially when the voices of your children have been silenced and muffled. And even before this water crisis, I would take my pediatric residents every year to our state capitol and we would meet with legislators and we'd talk about immunizations and gun control and other things affecting children. So all of this work has been um, through, through that hat as a pediatrician, uh, through that very nonpartisan hat, but very political hat, because that's what advocacy often is, of being the voice for children. This is what children need, this is the science, and this is what needs to be done. Uh, when the state finally conceded, we you know, had many conversations with the governor. We framed kind of the water crisis as an added toxic stress uh, on top of so many toxic stresses, and that's why we need things like childcare and literacy support and Medicaid expansion. And then when he spoke at his state of the state address, he actually said toxic stress and, and child development. So um, people are like, and then others are like, well, how do you work with the governor? You know, he should be in jail. I'm like, I, my constituency is children. And I will work with whoever is in office, whoever controls the purse strings to make sure that kids get what they need. Uh, so you have to let children and kind of science be your guide. Uh, speaking of being in jail, some of uh, your allies described Flint as a crime scene. Uh, was anyone criminally indicted and have they uh, gone to prison for this? Yeah, there's been many um, criminal charges. There's been about 18 criminal charges against different folks, which is great. It's, they're all in process. I, I talked a lot about lead. That was one of um, one part of the crisis. We also had one of the largest outbreaks of Legionnaires disease, which is a pneumonia that older people can get. At least 12 people died, and there was an uptick in pneumonia mortality. So the head of, for example, our state health department has been charged with negligent homicide, including some of the emergency managers. All of these um, trials are in process. Um, there's also been many other investigations. The EPA had their own investigation, was also showed that they were at fault. They should have acted seven to nine months sooner. The Civil Rights Commission had an investigation which also clearly stated that this was a form of environmental injustice where the demographics of the population contributed to the crisis. So there have been and there continue to be ongoing investigations and that is critically important for the city. I view it as a, as a truth and reconciliation process. You need the accountability. You need to know what happened. Then as a role for reparations, and then that really long process of, of healing can continue. What's the current status uh, of Flint and its water system and the infrastructure problems that, that were unearthed in this, in this process? Yeah, so like I said, Flint is a tip of the iceberg. There are infrastructure issues all over this nation. Uh, we think our roads and our bridges are, are bad. What's underneath is, is, is much worse. Uh, Flint is going to be the third city that has replaced their lead lines. We are halfway through that process. The two other cities in the country that have replaced their lead lines are Madison, Wisconsin and, and Lansing, Michigan. Uh, and Flint will be the third. That will be completed by the end of 2019. Uh, which is pretty amazing. The other cities, it took them over a decade. Um, but this is work that every city needs to do. Uh, we were stubbornly slow as a nation to restrict the use of lead uh, because of their strong lobbying organization, of, of their industry. We didn't restrict the use of lead in our lines, our, our main service lines, until 1986, but not until uh, 2014 did we restrict it in brass fixtures. 
So our Flint schools had some of the highest water lead levels in the hundreds and thousands of parts per billion, but they didn't even have any lead lines. It was coming out of the brass fixtures, and those had to be replaced with fixtures that were built after 2014. So you know, week after week, we are hearing about cities and schools that are testing and finding lead in the water, where, and our regulations um, have not caught up with the science, and, and there's nothing in them that actually protect schools and childcare facilities. So Flint is replacing their lead pipes, and that were damaged uh, with this corrosive water. Uh, the folks at the EPA said it was like drinking through a lead-painted straw. The pipes were so eaten up, and you never knew when a piece of that lead scale was going to come and into the drinking water. Um, so because of this earth-moving infrastructure work, people have to remain on precautions. Uh, because when you do this groundwork, it disrupts the lead scale that's underneath and it, it can increase release. But, but by and large, the water quality has dramatically improved, but the precautions are in place because of the infrastructure work. And where is the funding coming from for the infrastructure repair? So the funding is coming from a blend of state and federal resources. There was a Flint bill that did pass the US Congress in December 26 that includes much of the funding for that pipe replacement work, as well as some state dollars for that pipe replacement work. The funding for all the awesome stuff that we're doing for children is, is blended. It is from state, federal, but a, a large role is philanthropy. Um, another reason I wrote this book was because part of the proceeds go to our Flint Kids Fund, flintkids.org, uh, which is funding the breastfeeding programs and the early literacy promotion and the home-based services and the visiting programs and what have you. Um, and that has not been garnered for our long-term recovery. Are there other cities in the country that you know of who have similar problems to Flint's in terms of water supply? Sure, absolutely. So uh, Flint is not isolated. Nothing as egregious as what happened in Flint, where the entire city wasn't treated properly and it went on for so long. Um, but Flint is not the first time that we've had such a crisis. Uh, in this book, I talk about Washington, D.C., which a decade ago had a very similar lead and water crisis, which was, which was covered up for a long time. But throughout history, there have been lead and water crises. Um, the place of my birth is actually Sheffield, England. And in the 1890s, they had a lead and water crisis. They noticed a lot of the pregnant moms lost their babies because they drank that water. And because of that, in the early 1900s, they invented the first, one of the first abortion pills that was a lead pill. Um, and that was published in the British Medical Journal. Um, so for over 150 years, we have had documented lead and water crises. Uh, we talked about the word lead coming from the Latin plumbum. Um, the Romans used lead in their, in their plumbing, in their aqueducts. And there's actually theories that hypothesize the demise of the Romans is because they used so much lead in their plumbing. They also did crazy things like put it in their food. Uh, not, not a good idea. Um, but we've known about, about the use of lead throughout. It's mainly a Midwest, Northeast problem, but because of its use in fixtures, it's an everywhere problem. Uh, you've described in your book what are commonly known as ACE, adverse childhood experiences, and the lead situation for the children of Flint is one of those. What are some of the other adverse child experiences, particularly that you see as a pediatrician? Right, so there's this growing recognition, um, really I think the most important thing that's happening right now in pediatrics and public health is um, is the field of, of toxic stress and, and ACEs, which is adverse childhood experiences. It is the recognition that what happens in early childhood 
really has this graded and predictable impact on a child's life course. And the other ACEs or toxic stresses are things like exposure to violence, uh, living in poverty, being abused and neglected, lack of nutrition, exposure to toxins. Um, you know, the list goes on and on of these uh, development debilitating conditions. And when you have more and more of these toxicities, especially in the critical window of your prenatal to preschool window, which is when you, you have the greatest rate of brain growth, um, it, it impacts your risk of you know, chronic disease, substance abuse, mental health disorders, and it's actually been linked to decreased um, longevity. So if you have six or more of these ACEs, your life expectancy actually will drop 20 years. Uh, but this is all based on like population level data, not on individual people. Um, but the good thing about this, this, this knowledge that is increasingly um, based on science, we also know kind of the neural pathways, what happens to the immunologic system, our hormones and the immune response, and even genetics when we're exposed to all these early toxicities. The good thing is that it's modifiable and it gives us hope and that we can put in place the science-based interventions to, to identify these early adversities, but most importantly, to buffer them and to limit them with parent supporting, child supporting interventions and policies. And that's what we're trying to do in Flint. And what, what are the uh, impacts on the IQ loss of a child who is uh, raised ingesting lead covered water? Yeah, so this has been well studied, uh, what lead does to cognition um, and IQ, and these, this is also population level research. So a population of children exposed to lead, um, you see that IQ curve shift to the left, that bell curve shifts to the left, you have less gifted students, and you have more children who need special education services. Um, and this is at a population level. It's not predictive for one child. Two children could have the same lead level and one kid goes to Harvard and one kid needs special ed their whole life. You can't predict it, predict it because there's other factors that come into play. Uh, but when you control for the, all those other factors, the science is increasingly clear um, that there is not any level of lead that doesn't show a deleterious impact. Um, so that's how we have gotten to the point that there is no safe level of lead exposure. And is there any therapy that can reduce uh, the impact of lead? The cure for lead exposure is prevention, uh, which is so much of what public health is. So uh, we are supposed to practice something that in public health is called primary prevention, which means you're never supposed to expose a population to lead um, because there is, there is no treatment. However, there's a lot that can be done to limit the impact of that exposure, and that's exactly what we are doing in Flint. It's, it's one risk factor on top of many risk factors that children have. Uh, here in Minneapolis, we pride ourselves on having a very clean water coming out of great. our taps. It was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, what you can't see. Right, right. Yeah, so, so uh, how, how can we as citizens here in Minneapolis learn something about the lead content in our water, and particularly for our children in public schools? Absolutely. So ask questions, ask to see their con consumer confidence reports. Um, you can get your water tested, uh, contact your local water utility. 
If you think you have an older home or plumbing that was put in place before 2014, and you have a vulnerable population, so a, a, a child, uh, an infant, especially an infant who's using this water to mix their formula, um, or a, a pregnant mom, uh, I would go ahead and put a lead clearing filter um, on your kitchen sink. Um, the filters have to be certified for lead clearing. They're certified by the National Sanitation Foundation um, to clear lead. There's other things that you can do. You can um, run your water. So uh, whenever you don't use your water for a long time, you're supposed to flush your water. Flush it, uh, put on the cold water, flush it, let it run until it gets really cold. That's when you know you have water from the main. You're also never supposed to use hot water for cooking um, or, 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 or drinking because hot water increases the leaching of lead from your plumbing. Um, so just those simple things in addition to a filter will decrease your risk. The reason that schools and childcare facilities are higher risk, not only do they have children, um, but they have long periods of non-use. So weekends, overnight, summer breaks, what have you. And that creates more stasis in the water supply, more pooling. Um, and they also have older facilities. So uh, schools all over are now testing and installing filtration devices. Uh, Detroit Public Schools just turned off all their all their water supply and they're installing these filtration systems. Baltimore Schools has not turned on their water for 10 years because whenever they turn on they find lead um, and then they close it. Uh, so this is in being increasingly recognized. There is nothing in any federal law uh, that governs the lead and water in schools. So there's a, there's a huge need, if anything, to learn from Flint to strengthen these environmental health regulations uh, and we continue to advocate for that. And we think of this largely as an urban problem, and we've discussed it that way, but one of the listeners says, I was told at the very first doctor visit I had in southwest Minnesota, don't drink the water. This is a rural issue, too, because of farm chemicals. Uh, so what can we do in, in the rural areas to stand up for clean water? Absolutely. It's a rural area. There's also folks who are well water, which aren't governed by any of these rules and laws, which are already lax. Um, so I would just say continue to, to advocate, continue to ask questions, and you have power. You have power in a couple weeks at the ballot box. Use that power. Vote, 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 vote. The town hall forum today, as it always is, comes from a sanctuary, and I'm interested in what the faith community's involvement was in responding to the crisis in Flint. Were they allies or Absolutely. not? They we were. We have a very strong faith community. We have an organization called the Concerned Pastors, uh, which are a group of pastors who do a lot of advocacy. They had been meeting with the governor for about a year and a half. Um, our pastors and our faith community were at the front lines throughout this crisis, not only in the exposing of the crisis, but absolutely um, in their recovery and, and being a, a safe place for people to come to um, be, and to really get comfort because this was a trauma. Think of it like PTSD. We talked about lead, we talked about legionnaires, but by and large the biggest issue was, was the psychological mental health trauma. Uh, people were betrayed by every governmental agency that was supposed to protect them. They're angry, they're scared, they feel guilty, they're stressed and just those emotions in and of themselves can lead to poor outcomes. So our faith community has been an incredible resource um, for, for healing. Along the way in this process, you had to confront critics of your scientific research and the results of your research. Uh, and some of that was from um, politicians perhaps who didn't want to face the consequences of what you were uncovering. Some of it came from this sort of anti-intellectual, anti-science 
movement in our nation today. How do you counter that as a scientist, as a researcher? Yeah, and I think that's why this book is so relevant for today, this story. So Flint is a story of absolute science denial. Like, you did not need my science, the evidence that children were being poisoned by this water. We had so much science even before that that was being denied. General Motors, you know, corroding engine parts, lead in the water, uh, this, all the other concerns that were coming up. So science was, was literally uh, disregarded and dismissed and denied. And I do not have to tell you that this is a story that we are hearing every single day in regards to climate change, in regards to the very regulations at the EPA that protect our air and our water quality. This is based, all based on decades of great, great science. Um, so I think part of the fault lies in us as scientists. We have not been doing a good job communicating our science. I was involved in the March for Science. I was one of the honorary co-chairs with, with Bill Nye, which was really cool. Um, but the reason, the reason that I participated, because I want more doctors and scientists and academics to come out of their ivory towers, to come out of their hospitals and their clinics and their exam rooms and their classrooms and do what science is meant to do, which is benefit the public good and to share that science. What I did when I came up to a press conference and shared my science, that was an academic no-no. I actually received from MIT a disobedience award for that, which was <laughs> awesome, but very hard to explain to my children that I got a disobedience award. But, but we need more scientists to get out of their comfort zones and realize that, that you know, their work is not based on publications and tenure and you know, presentations, but their work is based on, on benefiting the public good. Um, and, and so I hope that one of the lessons of this story is that more scientists are, can do and will do a better job communicating their science. And we're seeing that a little bit, especially with, with climate change and other things that are happening. Uh, just last week, um, the EPA let go their chief uh, children's health scientist, a, a doctor who was the head of the Office of Children's Health Protection, uh, the most preeminent pediatric health expert, um, and they let her go in an effort to dismantle um, the, the evidence and the science of protecting children in, in the environment. And, and she's speaking up now. She, she's speaking up publicly about, about that, what, me, what that means to, to children and the environment. So, uh, so I, I hope, you know, it's a scary thing to do that. It's scary to, to speak up and go against your academic grain, go against the status quo, but it, it increasingly needs to happen. Uh, you. You, you're a product of the American educational system, the best Public we have. Schools. There you go. <laughs> but you're also an immigrant, uh, coming from a family with a long history of, of activism in other parts of the world. Uh, and uh, I, I wonder, as you reflect on your family's history, particularly, how does that, how did that influence you uh, to be to be who you are today? This is a story in my book and I'll share it briefly. So as a kid, I always heard about my great uncle Nuri, uh, who pretty much spent most of his life on the run or in jail, um, fleeing government officials somewhere. Um, and through the writing of this book, we uncovered um, that he actually fought in the Spanish Civil War, which we kind of knew about, but we didn't know the details. And we were able to use his nom de guerre, his code name, and we re received his full file from the Spanish Civil War. So he was one of two Iraqis uh, that went from Baghdad to Spain. The other Iraqi happened to be an Iraqi Jew. Um, and they went um, to fight Franco. They went to fight fascism. They went to fight Nazi.
Nazis. They went to fight for freedom. And as a kid, I always remember hearing stories about him. He also went to Palestine to fight for Palestine's independence. When he was in Iraq, he founded a group called the Association Against Imperialism and Fascism. Like, what an awesome name. Um, so, so I often think about my great uncle and think about this guy who, who fought a borderless cause. So it wasn't about country or race or religion, but it was about freedom and justice, no, no matter where one is. Um, so I think that has definitely been passed on to me. Um, I'm in Flint for those same reasons. You know, I could practice anywhere else, but I'm in Flint um, because it's a, a way for me to serve um, and to give back uh, to a community um, that, that I'm privileged to, you know, use my competence and, and confidence to help. Uh, so these are kind of part of my family story. So I definitely wanted those stories to be weaved in this book so you understand that people that come from my part of the world also come from a long line of folks who are fighting for social justice and peace. One last very quick question, a yes or a no. Have you ever considered running for political office? <laughs> I'm committed to the children of Flint right now. Thank you, Dr. Mona Hannah Atish. Thank you.